Trump chants death to the mullahs should they ever try anything like that again. Burkina who? Australia pulls a Trump and oh my gosh, can you believe it? Mitty Snooze Brief has a producer. All of this and so much more on this week's edition of Mitty Snooze Brief. And welcome, welcome, welcome to this week's edition of Midi Snooze Brief. I'm your host, Winston R. Holland. I want to welcome someone I only dreamed about having, but actually have for the summer. Cross Network Global Media, which is the name of this company that actually I haven't mentioned on the podcast before, has their very first intern, University of Texas Austin student Michael Yearout, who just has an unbelievably dynamite resume. So good, in fact, that I really noticed two things from it. Number one, I wonder why in the world he's working with me. And number two, I can only actually understand about half of what's on the resume. His uh, technical expertise is so vast. So Michael, uh, from myself and the Midis News Brief audience, thank you for being with us and joining us for this summer. Uh, he actually doesn't have a microphone in, in front of him right now, but we'll probably get one in front of him in, in the future. So we've had fun this morning getting the studio set up for producer mode. So it's been a lot of fun, and I think you'll notice that the show will probably go a bit more smoothly than normal thanks to, thanks to his presence, but we really, really appreciate him. Uh, and I did have a question for Michael. Is there any chance you could just go ahead, skip your senior year, and spend Fridays with me? I, I think he's, I don't know, I think he's not <laughs> not real interested in doing that. But if he does, if he does, you know, uh, you're, you're, you're really more than welcome. Actually, I, I, no, I wouldn't accept it. You need to finish your school. That's, that's at least what I'm supposed to say, right? All right, so uh, guys, please, please, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or just tell Alexa to play the Midi Snooze Brief bot podcast. And don't forget to leave a five-star review wherever it is you leave views, uh, leave reviews, because you love the show indefatigably. Especially if you listen to all two hours of last week's show. Poor Michael over here is nothing. What? <laughs> last week's show was two hours. Don't worry, Michael. It's hopefully not going to be that long this time. Uh, but we had a lot of fun, didn't we? Also, please give us a like on Facebook at Mitty Snooze Brief and on Twitter at Mitty's Briefing. And of course, send love, hate, differing viewpoints, petty, or embarrassingly accurate insults to Mitty Snooze Brief at gmail.com. Comma, if you send negative email, do not worry. My skin is half the width of the average epidermis, and it will indeed destroy, nay, obliterate my very world. Also, if you really, really, really love Mini Snooze Brief, you can support us via PayPal. Just look in today's show notes, and you will see a link to donate. There are quite a few expenses involved with putting on a show like this, and any support, either one-time or recurring, is a huge blessing and helps us to pay for the equipment, rent, and any other miscellaneous expenses. All right. Last week, we spent a solid hour on Iran because tensions between Iran and the U.S. have been heating up even to the point where we could send up to 10,000 troops to the region to counter any Iranian nefarious behavior. But let's back up a bit to last Saturday, where something very 
interesting happened in our favorite city of Baghdad in Iraq. So basically what happened is last Saturday, May 19th, there was a rocket attack in the green zone in the middle of Baghdad. Uh, the green zone is essentially where you have the government headquarters for Iraq, you have the U.S. Embassy, you have all kinds of government buildings, uh, uh, even uh, government residences. It's really kind of the center of the Iraqi world and where diplomats, reporters, civilians tend to feel safe and kind of the, one of the places in Iraq you sh- should be able to feel safe. The U.S. Embassy there is, is actually the world's largest embassy. And if you look up pictures of this embassy online, uh, I encourage you to do so. I mean, it looks like a, a concrete prison. It, it's massive. looks like a fortress. Um, and I guess understandably so with the Iraq invasion and, and so forth, they needed, uh, they needed quite the fort- fortification. But this thing is massive. I mean, I would feel safe in, in that thing in the middle of a war. I mean, it's, it's truly remarkable. So, basically, the Iraqi military said in a statement that a Katusha rocket, quote, fell in the middle of the green zone without causing any losses. So, a Katusha rocket is basically launched on the back of a, of a vehicle. You're going to have multiple. looks like, uh, from the pictures that I saw, about 20 rockets on, on the back of a vehicle. And actually, <laughs> if you go back about five centuries... Uh, there's, a, I believe, in Korea. There's a, a, a this all originated with a uh, kind of the very first rocket launcher in the, uh, I believe, is the 15th or 16th century in Korea, where you had about actually 20 arrows on on the back of this carriage, and they would literally like light the arrows, and they could shoot air, flaming arrows from the back of this carriage against their enemies. You can imagine at that time they, you know, I mean they had to have some pretty good advantages in the war. But anyway, Katusha rocket. Um, and actually, if you look up Katusha rocket on uh, Wikipedia, I actually did my very first Wikipedia entry yesterday just for fun. I added the, uh, at the at the very bottom of the Wikipedia page, I added in the May, May 19th, 2019 uh, rocket attack on the embassy. It's like two lines, nothing really big and exciting, but uh, but it was kind of fun because I'd never done that before. Ever been on Wikipedia and it says edit, and you're like, oh my gosh, like I, I can really edit this thing? <laughs> like this is okay? You kind of feel like you're doing something bad, but uh, but I I played nice and just put in uh, straight up facts, none of my usual haranguing and commentary that typically goes along with my with my facts. Uh. So it the Katusha rocket actually actually you spell it K A T Y U S H A. So if you want to look it up, uh, also uh, this these stories and everything like I say every week, all these stories here will be up on the website at midisnewsbrief.com. So it also landed near the statue of the unknown soldier, which is dedicated to what they would call martyrs of the Iran-Iraq war, which really kind of gives you an insight. They just kind of fight a battle, but they consider consider each other martyrs when they die in battle, as Sunnis fighting against Shia and so forth. Uh, Iraq, which at the time was Sunni, under Saddam Hussein, and then, of course, Iran being being Shia, but they consider themselves martyrs, uh, just fighting a war between each other. And that kind of gives you the idea of the region of how much uh, the Islamic religion is ingrained into 
uh, into the Middle East that when Muslims themselves fight each other, they just they consider themselves martyrs, that they are in a perpetual jihad, perpetual holy war against one another, which is unbelievably sad and uh, why we pray God's kingdom come and that Jesus, who they would call Isa, uh, is magnified and more and more come to Christ. The more come to Christ, the less they're going to be fighting uh, holy wars. That's just the, that's the simple reality. So it landed, also landed uh, like less than a mile from the U.S. Embassy. So <laughs> you can imagine how our esteemed president reacted in his, in his usual way to, to such a happening. But uh, if you remember last week, we reported extensively on the tensions between the U.S. and Iran. Like I said, I just I spent an hour on just Iran, and I really could have spent 10 more. So much has been going on. Um, and really just how hard the U.S. sanctions have hurt Iraq, um, I'm sorry, Iran economically. Uh, the regime is on life support. Their gross domestic product is plummeting. Oil exports are drying up. And after Trump's recent elimination of waivers of countries buying oil from Iran, it's only going to get worse. There were eight nations that were, up until May 1st, were, were still allowed to buy oil from Iran and do business with the United States. Now they no longer can. And uh, and so we're gonna we're gonna see their exports dry up even more because if they buy more oil from Iran, they're not doing business with the United States, and that's just the basic reality. And really, remember, who would you rather do business with? The United States twenty trillion dollar economy, or Iran's four hundred fifty billion dollar economy in shrinking? So this is unbelievable, max, as they call it, the, max, uh, the maximum pressure campaign on Iran. Uh, it's, it's, truly, it's truly unprecedented. It's bad for Iran right now, and really you can thank the fact that we have a real president in the White House willing to do something about this murderous Islamic jihadist regime funding terror, I mean, all over the world, not just in the Middle East, not just in the Levant, but all over the world. So we're... Um, very thankful this this regime the funds need to dry up the regime needs to topple and the persian people need leadership that is not a terrorist regime i mean this is this is pretty basic so it's it's really cool and i and for my quote of the week actually i'm uh i am going to uh, i've talked about the similarities and what i see between reagan's battle against communism and Trump's battle with Iran. Of course, Trump is also battling communism, socialism here in the U.S., but that, that's another thing. Um, and so for the quote of the week, I'm actually going to uh, read a passage from the book The Crusader that I mentioned last week, which is a history of Ronald Reagan's fight against communism. And we're going to see some, some more parallels there. It's actually pretty, pretty fascinating. So this week it'll be the, the passage of the week, and not so much the, uh, the quote of the week. So, how did President Trump respond to the uh, rocket attack in the Green Zone in Baghdad? So, this is from uh, Fox News. Trump says war will mean official end of Iran. Warns never threaten the United States again. 
President Trump fired a social media broadside at the Iranian regime Sunday afternoon, vowing that war between Washington and Tehran would result in, quote, the official end of Iran. And here's what he said. If Iran wants to fight, that will be the official end of Iran. Never threaten the United States again. Trump tweeted hours after a rocket landed less than a mile from the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad's heavily fortified Green Zone, the first such attack since September. An Iraqi military spokesman told reporters the rocket appeared to have been fired from East Baghdad, which is home to several Iran-backed Shiite militias. Tensions between the U.S. and Iran have risen in recent weeks after the Trump administration ordered warships and bombers to the Middle East earlier this month to counter threatened attacks against U.S. interests by Iran or Iranian-backed forces. The U.S. also ordered non-essential staff out of its diplomatic posts in Iraq days after Secretary of State Pompeo visited Baghdad and told Iraqi intelligence that the United States had been picking up intelligence that Iran is threatening American interests in the Middle East. Two Iraqi officials told the Associated Press that Pompeo had offered no details of the alleged threat. Now, that is very interesting, right? Pompeo <clears throat> travels to Iraq. They evacuate non-essential personnel, warns Iraqis of potential threats. And not long after that, some Katushi rockets land in the green zone less than a mile away from the U.S. embassy. So apparently Pompeo had some had some good intelligence and needed to be needed to be taken seriously. Trump appeared to have softened his tone in recent days, saying he expects Iran to seek negotiations with his administration. Asked on Thursday if the US might be on a path to war with Iran, the president answered, I hope not. <laughs> so I mean, <clears throat> I guess one thing you could uh, give President Trump for is I, I think uh, ultimately I think he does not want to go to war with Iran, like we talked about extensively last week. And secondly, I don't think he has to go to he will have to go to war with Iran, and that Iran themselves, whose economy is just being decimated, cannot afford a war with the U.S. So uh, I feel like Iran right now is like a little kid trying to poke the hornet's nest as little and as much as possible without getting stung. Uh, but ultimately, I think we'll see. I could be wrong, but ultimately, I think that the Trump understands that the U.S. economy, which is strong and powerful and like 50 times larger than Iran's shrinking economy, and funds are drying up. Funds, are, as we're going to see in a minute, funds are even drying up to their terror proxies. Um, it's really, really, a really, really bad time right now to go to war with Iran. So I, I, but I think he has a good balance. He's like, I hope not, right? That's that's a pretty powerful statement, actually, because he's he's telling us, right? He's telling American citizens, look, I don't want to go to war, but on the other hand, he's saying, I will, <laughs> if if I have to. So I I think he's I think he's striking the right balance, uh, but we will see. <clears throat> the U.S. Navy said Sunday it had conducted exercises in the Arabian Sea with the aircraft carrier strike group ordered to the region to counter the unspecified threat. So, like I said, you know, last week they had, uh, you know, they sent aircraft carriers, B-52 bombers, Marines, uh, Patriot missile defense systems, I mean, all kinds of stuff to basically get ready, peace through strength, right, which was Reagan's policy, peace through strength. Look, we're here. Don't mess with us. Like, we will and can destroy you. 
Now, if that was the only thing that was going on, I'd be concerned. Like if Iran had a thriving economy, they were doing great, and they had all this money to spend on terrorism all over the world. Honestly, right now, I would I would be a little bit more worried about a conflict. Remember, Iranian Shiite eschatology, which is the study of the end times, says that there is going to be a great war with the infidels before their 12th imam comes. You cannot, like we were just talking about how with Iran, the Iran and the Iraq, Iraq war, and they considered the tomb of the unknown soldier, the, they considered themselves martyrs when Muslims fight each other. Or really anybody else, honestly, not just Muslims fighting each other, but it's particularly interesting that when Muslims fight each other, they consider themselves, they consider themselves martyrs. But uh, it's, uh, religion is, uh, the Islamic religion and Islamic faith is so ingrained. It's so a part of the ideology and the, the basic understanding of life in those cultures um, that, I mean, I mean, really, ultimately, they, they're expecting and, and they're okay with a, a great war. Because it's a part of their view of what's going to happen in the end times. That can't be underscored and that can't be ignored by our national security agencies. They just simply cannot. It has to be a part of it, which was such a shame that when Obama took over, they began to purge the the FBI and the CIA of everything relating to Islam. Look, you're not uh, simply having an understanding of Islamic theology and how uh, and, and different regimes and how they view the world uh, is not a bad thing, and it's not even anti-Muslim. I am not anti-Muslim, as, as I've said many, many times. I am for the, the Muslim people, but if there is uh, dangerous theology associated with different regimes around the world, then we need to be fully aware of that, so that's why I was very glad when... Uh, when when Trump took over, because I think they're going to have a more realistic realistic view of that. So, uh, so I again, like I said, I would be more concerned about a conflict if Iran was just thriving, right? But it's not, and so I think Trump can do a show of force, and I think he's they're putting the squeeze on the economy and all these different metrics. Like I look at the show notes last week, the BBC article that just lays it all out very quickly. All the different ways that the Trump or that, that the Trump administration has been putting the squeeze has been putting the squeeze on Iran, uh, and I think you'll see he's he's in a pretty good pretty good position. The U.S. Navy said Sunday it had conducted exercises in the Arabian Sea with the aircraft carrier strike group ordered to the region to counter the unspecified threat from Iran. The Navy said the exercises and training were conducted Friday and Saturday with the USS Abraham Lincoln aircraft carrier strike group in coordination with the U.S. Marine Corps, highlighting U.S., quote, lethality and agility to respond to threat as well as to deter conflict and preserve U.S. strategic interests. Okay, so what did the Iranians say? of the country's elite Revolutionary Guard Corps, IRGC, freshly designated as a terrorist organization by the United States of America, and appropriately so. General Hussein Salamai was quoted Sunday as saying, Iran is not looking for war, but he said the U.S. is going to fail in the near future, quote, because they are frustrated and hopeless. (laughs) 
it's 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 always interesting to hear the Iranian side of things. Uh, they they just say the uh, uh, Iranian leadership just say the darndest things and are looking for a way out of the current escalation. Now, that's true. I mean, we, of course, don't want an escalation with Iran. Um, yeah, we are looking for uh, an appropriate path out. There's some truth with, with every lie, uh, but that we're frustrated and we're hopeless. There's no comparison between the military of the, military of the United States and the military of Iran, and that's just reality. Um, so, I mean, we know this is pure po- propaganda. Uh, if you guys remember, last week we discussed Kenneth Timmerman, who is a veteran Iran watcher and investigative journalist. Uh, he noted, remember, he noted how a high-ranking intelligence officer defected from the IRGC and brought a ton of info with him. Um, he said he has had defectors, many of which actually have lived with him in his home for months, tell him that the mullahs and the Iranian leadership actually believe the propaganda that they tell themselves and what they project to the public. Uh, but that being said, they have to know that this is beyond ludicrous, and deep down they have to understand the real threat that is the U.S., especially with the current president at the helm and their complete inability to, to defeat us. Also Sunday, Saudi Arabia's Minister of State for Foreign Affairs told reporters that the kingdom, quote, does not want war in the region and does not strive for that, dot, dot, dot. But at the same time, if the other side chooses war, the kingdom will fight this with all force and determination and will defend itself, its citizens, and its interests. And I think Saudi Arabia knows Saudi Arabia probably wouldn't mind because Saudi Arabia knows that the U.S. would uh, have its back and would be the end of what is to them quite the menace of a regime. There's only one concern. If I'm being just brutally honest here, there's only one concern that I have with the Iranian regime falling. Remember that the Middle East is just, it's so dynamic. If Iran falls, right, and let's say a friendly, democratic relatively freedom-loving group takes over. The concern I would have is how then who the Gulf states, who uh, Arab states such as Saudi Arabia, who before have never worked with Israel, they have never, I mean, uh, or, or very, very loosely, they don't like Israel. They think Israel's very existence is invalid. They think Israel's very existence is invalid and that uh, there really should not be a Jewish state at all. Look, that's not part of Islam. A Jewish state is not part of Islam whatsoever. Now, that being said, I can actually show you a verse from the Quran, and I will in a future episode, that says, the Quran itself that says Israel belongs to the Jews. If you can, if you can imagine that, uh, I'm not making this stuff up. It's actually there. I don't have the reference in front of me. But that being said, generally the Islamic world's view, aside with some exceptions, is that the Jewish state is invalid. But one of the reasons why the Gulf Arab states have been aligning and partnering with Israel, besides it's good, it's good monetarily to do business with Israel because they are just a thriving, awesome uh, economic powerhouse. Um. But also because they're an ally against Iran and against their uh, terror proxies and even Iraq, which is very friendly with Iran now. 
thanks to the Iraq War and Hussein falling and a Shia-friendly regime in its place. So, so yeah, that's, that's really my only concern. That being said, I think ultimately it will be better if Iran does fall, uh, but that does make me a little like, okay, how are the Gulf states going to respond to Israel and their safety and security once, uh, once it falls? But uh, I want to mention real quick the uh, so there's uh, this is from the Washington Post uh, May twenty third I'm sorry May thirteenth so it's the it's a little older but I think it's it's insightful into the the whole um, the whole kind of issue we're dealing with all of the moving parts in the Middle East and this is Rick Nowak May thirteen the oil route that could become central to the mounting tensions between Iran and the U.S. He says, After a week of heightened tensions between Iran and the U.S., Saudi Arabia's foreign ministry added to the uncertainty in the region Monday, saying two of its oil tankers were targeted in acts of sabotage. If you didn't hear about that, two of Saudi Arabia's uh, oil tankers were sabotaged and caused... uh, you know, significant damage, but thankfully no oil was spilled in, into the ocean, but uh, nevertheless it happened. And Saudi Arabia, they called the incidents a serious threat to the security and safety of maritime traffic. They didn't single out any particular perpetrator. Uh, of course, Iran responded back with, you know, they cautioned against any possible conspiracy orchestrated by ill-wishers. You know, they're going to, I mean, they're not going to come out and say that they did it. Only last week, U.S. Maritime Administration warned of Iranian interference in the region. Quote, since early May, there is an increased possibility that Iran and or its regional proxies could take action against U.S. and partner interests. So what is, what is kind of all of, all of this about? Um, here, let me... Uh, okay, let me go back up here. As of Monday, there was no evidence of Iranian links to the attacks alleged by Saudi Arabia against commercial vessels. The incidents come not only amid heightened tensions between Iran and its foes in the region, but also between Tehran and Washington. One week ago, U.S. government deployed the USS Abraham, Lincoln Carrier Strike Group, and all the things that we've mentioned before. It was not clear if the deployment at the time was connected to more recently voiced concerns over possible Iran-linked attacks on commercial vessels. But the deployment of additional U.S. resources to the region amid heightening tensions has become a more regular occurrence. Now listen to this. Here, here's, here's what it's, this is what I was searching a minute ago but couldn't find. Here, here's what, it, what it's all about. The reason, right, this is all such a, a big issue, right? When it comes down to it, it comes down to oil, baby. Oil, oil, oil. What's going on? The reason is the narrow stretch of water at the mouth of the Persian Gulf, the straight of Hormuz, which any ship has to transit to get from the Gulf of Amman to the Persian Gulf or back. Say, oh, okay, well, the Strait of Hormuz, you know, that's pretty small. Is that really a big deal? Uh, yeah, <laughs> the Strait of Hormuz is a big deal. If you want to disrupt in a spectacular way the world's supply of oil, you shut off the Strait of Hormuz.
So why is it so crucial? About a third of the world's oil tanker traffic passes through the strait. Did you hear that? A third of the world's oil tanker traffic passes through the strait, which is bordered by Iran and Oman. In 2016, 18.5 million barrels of petroleum were shipped through it every day. Let me say that again. In 2016, 18.5 million barrels of petroleum petroleum were shipped through it every day, making it the world's single most important maritime route for many nations' oil supplies. So if you want to disrupt the price of oil, you want to send the price of oil in the U.S. skyrocketing, make Donald Trump look bad, or whatever, like shutting off the Strait of Hormuz will do it. So what would be the impact if Iran blocked the Strait of Hormuz? If that route were inaccessible, the world's supply and ship daily global oil exports would suddenly drop by 30%. Overall, oil supplies would drop by about 20%. Some of the oil may be rerouted via pipelines that have been expanded over fears of an Iranian-Western clash, but those are still limited in capacity and more expensive. As a result, and here's the big issue, oil prices would immediately spike as Arab oil suppliers would lose their market access either entirely or to a large extent. So that now that being said, uh, you know the U.S. would quickly jump in and resolve it. Um, <clears throat> this would affect Asian markets, so uh, Japan, India, China. I mean, they would really all want it resolved. So you would, I mean, you might really, I mean. Iran knows they're going to make enemies out of the whole world if they cut off the Strait of Hormuz. So uh, it, it's quite the bargaining chip, but it's, going to, it's not just going to affect us, it's going to affect them. When their oil exports are already significantly down and dropping, the idea of them cutting off more of their own oil exports is just going to hurt them even more. So I don't see them doing this. I could be wrong, but I don't see them doing it. Has Iran made similar threats before? Yes, 2011, 2012, 2016, 2018. Some of those threats were intended to be rhetorical, at least in the short run. Last July, Rouhani implied that Iran had the power to severely disrupt the oil trade in the Persian Gulf, which would likely have meant an attempt to blockade the Strait of Hormuz. Rouhani later appeared to repeat his veiled threat, and was quoted on his, on his official website as saying, quote, Mr. Trump, we are the people of dignity and guarantor of security of the waterway of the region throughout the history. Don't play with the lion's tail. You will regret it. Trump eventually responded on Twitter. I like that eventually. He's like, yeah, I'm not worried about it. Trump eventually responded on Twitter, writing that Iran, quote, boy, I wish I could do a Trump voice. I just can't. I've, and again, I've never heard anybody actually impersonate Trump. Well, have you, Mr. Producer, have you heard anybody actually do a good job impersonating Trump? Anybody, any, he says no. No, anybody that I've heard try, they just don't do, oh, oh and Ben Shapiro's Trump impersonation just drives me nuts. It, it, that's the one thing that makes me not want to listen to his podcast. Whenever he quotes Trump, he does this. Trump impersonations, I, I need to send him an email and be like, Mr. Shapiro, please stop impersonating Trump. And it's not because I'm offended by you impersonating Trump. You just got to do a better job. Okay, anyway, that, that's, an, that's an aside note. Um, 
Trump eventually responded on Twitter, writing that Iran, quote, will suffer consequences the likes of which few throughout history have ever suffered before. <laughs> like all caps. Uh, who, I mean, who would have thought what, that Twitter would become such an such a instrument of conveying foreign policy and even uh, bantering between uh, competing nations? That is, uh, it, it's fascinating. But, but uh, yeah, so, <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see. But that, that straight of Hormuz, uh, Hormuz, however you say it, keep a lookout for it. And, well, it'll be interesting to see kind of what happens there. But I don't expect Iran, I do not expect Iran to, to shut that off. They're, they're in a, like I've said a zillion times, I'm going to stop repeating it, but they're in a bad situation. They don't need any more funds to dry up for them. And case in point, right, <clears throat> case in point, it's not just the nation of Iran, right? This is why this foreign policy is just so beautiful. It is, it's just fun to watch. And let me be honest with you guys, there are days like, Yesterday morning, I, I think I would have, I don't know what I, what I would have rather done. I think I would have rather gone outside and buried my face in the dirt than look at Middle East news. All right, I'm just being honest. It's not like I wake up every day just giddy to check out what's going on in the most explosive and dangerous and volatile region in the world. Uh, you could say maybe certain areas of Africa would be competing with that. Uh, Africa is just... Ooh, that's a rough. That's a rough neighborhood. I, I, in my mind, it's maybe more of a rough neighborhood than the Middle East, because um, at least the Middle East has Israel, um, as well as uh, Lebanon, which is uh, really, I mean, relatively, relatively free. Um, <clears throat> which, by the way, we are going to be recording a couple shows with my favorite, favorite Lebanese friend. Okay, he's my only Lebanese friend, but he is an amazing guy, Thani Abu Hamid. We're going to be doing a uh, couple shows about the uh, Israel and the Bible and how it relates to Bible prophecy because I am going to be taking a couple weeks off for a family vacation. I'm going to miss two Fridays, but not to fear. Mideast News Brief will still be coming your way, produced by the great Michael Yearout as well. So uh, you know the show is actually going to go well, and uh, we're going to have a fun time. We're going to open up. We're going to open up the scriptures, and we're going to talk about what uh, Israel says. Subscription alert! Your trial subscription to Norton has expired. Uh oh, I better do something about that. Um, but. Uh, what Bible prophecy says about Israel, and again, if you don't think Israel, uh, the biblical, what the Bible says about Israel affects foreign policy, affects the region, uh, you would be mistaken. And it's just a great, just enrichment, just diving into the Word and learning about it. So uh, I'm really excited, uh, really excited about that. Stay tuned. That'll air the first and second week of June. So, okay, I said all I to say. It's not just hitting Iran, it's hitting Hezbollah. The just horrific terrorist group based out of southern Lebanon that is receiving funds from Iran. So I'm just going to, uh, we're going to look at this just a little bit. And then, Michael, I think we're going to take a, take, a, take a little break after this. Uh, but this is podcasting, so 10 minutes to us is like one second for you. Uh, but let's look at this. 
This is also from the Washington Post. That's that's pretty good. I mean, two articles <laughs> from the Washington Post. I'm not a not a huge fan. Uh, so you know, I don't just get my news from uh, from uh, sources on the right. All right, the powerful Lebanese Hezbollah militia has thrived for decades. I'm sorry. This is Liz Sly and Susan Hedemos, May 18th has thrived for decades on generous cash handouts from Iran, spending lavishly on benefits for its fighters, funding social services for its constituents, and accumulating a formidable arsenal that has helped make the group a significant regional force with troops in Syria and Iraq. But, and this is a big but, since President Trump introduced sweeping new restrictions on trade with Iran last year, raising tensions with Tehran that reached a crescendo in recent days, Iran's ability to finance allies such as Hezbollah has been curtailed. Hallelujah. Hezbollah, the best funded and most senior of Tehran's proxies, has seen a sharp fall in its revenue and is being forced to make draconian cuts to its spending, according to Hezbollah officials, members, and supporters. So, I mean, this is pretty basic stuff here. This is pretty basic stuff. This is, this is basic uh, economic warfare. And actually, a great site for that, uh, Economic War Room. Um, or actually, that's the name of the show, but globaleconomicwarfare.com is actually a, a great site that analyzes a, a, a economic warfare across the world. But use economic warfare to dry up the funds of terror groups. It makes sense. I mean, why not? If you can do it, why not? And if you hit Iran, and Iran's funding Hezbollah, and if Iran's funding Hezbollah, and if it's funding proxies in Syria, and it's funding proxies in Latin America or wherever else Iran it's, it's spreading its deadly tentacles, dry up Iran, you dry up terror groups, and you save lives. You save lives. Not just of Jews, not just of Christians, but also Muslims, because they're the victims of this as well. Fighters are being furloughed or assigned to the reserves, where they receive lower salaries or no pay at all, said a Hezbollah employee with one of the group's administrative units. Many of them are being withdrawn from Syria, where the militia has played an instrumental role in fighting on behalf of President Bashar al-Assad, ensuring his survival. Programs on Hezbollah's television station Al-Manar have been canceled and their staff laid off, according to another Hezbollah insider, the once ample spending programs that underpin the group's support among Lebanon's historically impoverished Shiite community have been slashed, including the supply of free medicines and even groceries to fighters, employees, and their families. So, look, the sanctions are having an effect. The sanctions are going to continue to have an effect and look, why not? Right? I mean, why not? If you can use economic warfare to dry funds up, just like Reagan did with the Soviet Union, then uh, then let's do it. And that's what they're doing, so we'll see. Uh, and again, the, the article goes on to talk about how they're, they're looking for other funding sources. They're not taking it lying down, and nobody would expect them to. But the Washington Post is writing an article admitting that the Trump sanctions are having an impact on terror groups. <laughs> that is progress. That is serious, serious progress. Okay, I want to transition a little bit. While we're on, this is <clears throat> different but related, directly related. 
Have you ever heard of an EMP? I'm guessing you probably have. Oops, my computer just went dark there. Uh, oh, by the way, I'm super excited because I've actually been using Microsoft OneNote for like all my news and articles and everything. And it is just the coolest thing. I don't have like stacks of paper in front of me. So anyway, I'm really, really excited. I, I They should pay me for uh, the, the, the endorsement because it is just really, really slick note-taking thing. Anyway, aside from that, I'm pretty excited. But I do rely on my computer. And so if I let my, uh, don't move my mouse around enough, then it goes dark. But anyway, EMP stands for electromagnetic pulse bomb. EMPs, as you may know, are a credible threat to the security of the United States. Now, EMPs can come from really two main sources. We can, we can have a similar attack from the sun. The sun itself can produce, with their uh, solar flares, they get close enough, can produce basically the same thing that uh, an EMP attack from a terrorist regime would produce. A solar flare gets close enough to the United States, and you basically destroy the electrical grid. We actually had this happen. This happened. We had a, excuse me, <coughs> we had a solar flare so massive that had it happened today, it would have wiped out probably most of the population of the U.S. This happened. And it happened. And not too recent, uh, not too far away history. It happened, but it happened in 1859. And, you know, it, it, it affected a few things. But in 1859, this massive of a solar flare happened, and everybody's daily life went on. Like, you know, they're pushing the cart to market to sell vegetables, right? And there's just another day. If that same solar flare had happened today, which, by the way, it came really, really close to happening in 2012. And bizarrely, bizarrely enough, actually around the time of like the Mayan calendar ended and everyone was saying, oh, it's the end of the world or whatever, which I knew that we all, I mean, we all knew how stupid that was. Um, but there was, I think there were a few people worried about it. But kind of bizarrely, it, 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 this solar flare, had it been much closer, would have had the similar effect that it would have had had the U.S. been... Uh, the technological empire that it is now in 1859. So we can come from a solar flare, and it almost happened, right? So we have to think about that as a matter not just of national security, but of national su survival, protecting ourselves against uh, an EMP, either from a solar flare or from a terrorist attack. And uh, I'll, I'll be honest, this, uh, this news is a couple months, this news is a couple months old, but I wanted to bring it up because Iran has a, has a few ways up its sleeve, not just Iran, but other regimes who hate us, have a, have a few ways up its sleeve where they can try to hurt the U.S. And one of those 
is an EMP attack. And so how would that happen? How would that happen? Uh, Well, before I get to that, Trump actually, at the end of March, issued an executive order, basically directing the federal government to prepare a coordinated response plan in the event of an EMP, electromagnetic, electromagnetic pulse bomb. The order described the enormous damage such an attack could cause and noted the U.S. government currently lacks a coherent plan of action for responding to one. So this is actually from Breitbart, uh, March 29th, John Hayward. <clears throat> Look, back in like 2002, the Republican Congress under President George W. Bush ordered a report to be done on the threat of an EMP. This will be linked to at midisnewsbrief.com, but it was called Report of the Commission to Assess a Threat to the United States from Electromagnetic Pulse Attack. And, I mean, if you look at it, this wasn't some kind of tinfoil hat conspiracy theory uh, group types in uh, the basement of their homes, you know, all worried about an EMP attack. These were legit uh, professionals from the national security apparatus, from the think tank or the think tank world, people who know about this kind of stuff that basically made this report, that basically did this report. And they didn't, uh, and, and the basic conclusion of the report is that it's not a matter of if, but a matter of when. And just look at who's, uh, who's on this report. Dr. John Foster, Dr. William Graham, Dr. Robert Herman, General Richard Lawson, United States Air Force, retired. Doctor, doctor, doctor. There's a bunch of PhDs and a retired United States Air Force general put this report together saying it's not a matter of if but when. So Trump comes out and he, he finally, like that report came out in 2008, saying, it's not a matter of if, but when. We need to do something. Not only that, but I saw um, an interview, actually, with a, uh, with basically with a, a company where they do this kind of stuff. They have the ability to, to harden the national grid. And he basically said, yeah, it would cost us about between five and $600 million to harden the United States grid to protect it from the threat of an EMP attack. I mean... I think we print like $500 million a minute. I mean, the price tag is nothing. It is nothing to protect our critical infrastructures. And so, I I mean, I've just been banging my head against the wall going, what is our deal? Why will we not protect ourselves from the threat of an EMP? And and look, and the Breitbart article goes on to talk about, you know, Washington, uh, Washington Post report on it and and, you know, is the EMP threat, you know, in response to Trump's executive order, is the EMP threat a, a real threat? Nah. You know, but we do have to worry about it from the sun, blah, blah, blah. They, I just, we take such a laissez-faire approach to this when, look, Iran could send a, a ship to the Gulf of freaking Mexico and, undetected, unknown, launch some nukes 40 kilometers above the United States and do 
some damage. And look, if they hit the entire United States, if they hit the whole U.S., we are looking at, it has been estimated, that if our grid goes down, and I, I try not to be alarmist, and in, in, in my heart, I'm not worried about this, right? I, I choose not to worry about this. But the simple reality is, you're looking at, it's estimated that 90% plus of the population of the U.S. would die if the grid went completely down. It's We are so unbelievably dependent on the grid for our water, for our food, for our medicine, for our hospitals. We're, we are 100% dependent on it. That we must protect our critical infrastructure. And not, not only that, but we do not... Uh, the um, the equipment that would be hurt by this, the equipment that would be destroyed by an EMP that's necessary for our survival, we don't even make them here in the U.S. anymore. We'd have to get them from overseas, which could take up to a year or more. I mean, it would be devastating. So Trump signs an executive order. And here's, here's what he said. Uh, let's see. Let's go down to... <clears throat> so let's see here. The minimal media coverage given to Trump's order was bizarrely contemptuous, <clears throat> as though he had just issued an order for, to prepare defenses against flying saucers or flesh-eating zombies. He talks about the Washington Post thing. Other publications dismissed the EMP threat as mythical or mere science fiction, uh, which it, it is. This it's not mythical. It's not science fiction, as I just uh, as I just went over. I mean, literally, Iran could covertly send a ship to the Gulf of Mexico and launch some nukes over the U.S. Comparing a targeted EMP strike to solar flares, as the Washington Post does, is dangerously absurd, but Trump's executive order does mention natural disruption in its very first paragraph. So environmental dangers are not overlooked. <clears throat> so, and then, you know, he goes into it and so forth. But the point of the order is that we currently lack a coordinated strategy to deal with any significant disruption of the sensitive equipment our society is almost entirely entirely reliant upon. <clears throat> that equipment has only existed for a few decades, so history offers little precedent for how to deal with a deliberate attack, and no reason to believe natural forces cannot cause disruption on a catastrophic scale. It is particularly strange to see anyone mocking the White House for taking the matter seriously when Venezuela is currently showing the world a horrifying example of what happens to crowded cities when the lights go out. As a matter of fact, the Venezuelan dictatorship has made laughable attempts to blaming the nationwide blackouts on an EMP attack perpetrated by dissidents with the aid of the U.S. government. A real EMP strike would be orders of magnitude worse than the hardships imposed on Venezuela by socialism. And look, if you, 
Look, the report will be linked to, or the executive order will be linked to at MideastNewsBrief.com. Go and look at it. It's very reasonable. He's essentially just instructing different cabinet members, different members of of his administration, to do some research and report back to him. This is not, this is not anything crazy. What would be the big deal? Why is it such a big deal to protect our infrastructure from damage? Uh, it, it's just, it's mind-boggling to me. Mind-boggling to me. So, uh, and, and look, it, it doesn't have, it doesn't even have to be the entire U.S., does it? What if they launched an EMP over New York? Just over New York. Just over Wall Street. Shut down Wall Street. Shut down the banking sector. Shut down New York. That is millions and millions of people. So look, we have got to do something about it, and we have got to do something about it now. And so I'm very happy with this executive order. I will be monitoring this. Uh, This is something that I have really been following and into for a long time. And look, I think a practical aspect of this is that, uh, look, even the federal government recommends having a three-month supply of food on hand, having what they call a go-bag, being uh, emergency ready, that if the grid goes down for two weeks even, could we could we survive? I don't like to have to think about that. I don't like that being an issue, but I do think it is important because uh, an attack is, an EMP attack is possible. Even if it's not a big one, the whole U.S., even just localized, can affect a lot and cause quite a bit of disruption. So, like I said, I'll keep you guys posted on that. And I apologize, my voice is just uh, something. I think it might be allergies or something like that. I know Michael's been having fun with some allergies in the room that we're currently in, so I think they finally uh, caught up with me as well. But I want to talk about a nation right now. So I'm, I'm moving away, moving away from the EMP topic, and I want to uh, quickly ask you to consider putting something on your prayer list. There's a nation that honestly I don't think about a lot. It's uh, kind of tucked away there in northwestern Africa, but it uh, through. Uh, an article on the Gatestone Institute recently came to my attention, and I, I think it's, I think it's important. I, I hope to bring up in this podcast, just like with EMP stuff. I hope to bring up in this podcast things you might not necessarily hear about elsewhere, especially when it comes to the persecution of Christians and other religious minorities. Let's look at Burkina Faso. The new land of Islamic jihad and Christian slaughter. I'm just going to hit a few highlights from this. Uh, it is it's Burkina Faso is it's landlocked, like I said, in West Africa. It's just north of Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire. It's just south of Mali. Uh, and again, you know, whoever hears about Burkina Faso, it really doesn't make the headlines much. It's not any kind of major player on the world stage or anything like that. But when it comes to the persecution of Christians, 
Uh, it is and has been increasing. This is from Raymond Ibrahim, May 19th. Last Sunday, May 12th, in the small West African nation of Burkina Faso, as many as 30 armed Islamic terrorists stormed a Catholic church, slaughtered at least six Christian worshipers, including the officiating priest, then burned the church to the ground. One man recalled the incident, saying, Towards 9 a.m. during Mass, armed individuals burst into the Catholic church. They started firing as the congregation tried to flee. They burned down the church, then shops and a small restaurant, before going to the health center where they searched the premises and set fire to the head nurse's vehicle. The city is filled with panic. People are holed up at home. Shops and stores are closed. It's practically a ghost town. Discussing the situation in the country, so it's 60% Muslim, 23% Christian, 17% animus uh, or some other religion, the BBC reported that, quote, jihadist violence has flared in Burkina Faso since 2016. Fighters affiliated to al-Qaeda and the Islamic State group, as well as the local Ansarul Islam, which stands for Champions of Islam, have been active in the region. Sadly, while a total of 12 Islamic terror attacks were registered in 2016, nearly 160 were reported in just the first five months of 2019. So if you want to read more about it, I'll have it linked up at mideastnewsbrief.com. But uh, I've never prayed for Burkina Faso before, uh, understandably, I guess. Uh, it's, I know I've read it on a map before, but I'm like, oh, Burkina Faso, what is that? Where is that? And But our, our brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're listening and are a Christian, are obviously being greatly affected by an unbelievable i mean what is that you go from 12 to 160 is that like a 1500 percent spike in terror or something like that i mean that is just that is just massive and uh, the believers there are really 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 feeling it so please pray and again you know the we can talk about the question of why god allows these things to happen and the simple reality is, is that he knows the end from the beginning. We don't. And if he la- allows it to happen, then we can trust that he is using it for a bigger and better and greater purpose than, than we may not know for now. But what we can do is we can pray and we can ask God to protect those Christians, to keep them, to cover them, and might be most importantly that the uh, what they call champions of Islam, pray for them specifically, pray for the champions of Islam specifically, and Sarul Islam, pray for them, that they would lay down their weapons and come to Christ. We've talked about this many times, terrorists are coming to Christ all the time, all the time, every day. So let's not let this kind of stuff get our spirits down. Rather, let's, let's let it encourage us to go before God and pray that just miracles of heaven fall on Burkina Faso. I'm going to do that right now, actually. I don't normally pray on the broadcast. I'm going to do that right now. So if you guys want to, feel free to pray with me. Um, yeah, let's do it. Father, we just thank you that you are greater than the champions of Islam.
You are stronger. You are mightier. You are, uh, you, you are sovereign and you are in control. And none of this escapes your notice. And so we ask God, we come before your throne right now, and we ask that you would bring your kingdom to Burkina Faso, that the name of Jesus, or Isa in Islam, the name of Isa, the Son of God, would be magnified, that you would reveal yourself to these terrorists. I know many of them, many Muslims claim that Jesus visits them in dreams and thus have left Islam and become believers. So God, we pray you do that. We pray that you reveal yourself in whatever way you deem fit to these terrorists, to these champions of Islam, that they would lay down their arms and that they would turn to Christ, turn to peace, turn to love, turn to forgiveness, and that you would just send a revival. That there wouldn't be, right now there's a revival of terrorism. God, we just pray in the name of Jesus that there would be a revival of the Spirit of God and of Christ moving through that area. And we trust you, and we thank you, and we, we give it to you. Help us to pray. Help us to remember them. Remember, remember those Christians and to pray for that region. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. <clears throat> so, thank you guys for praying with me, for those who did. And, uh, you know, uh, again, keep them, in, keep them in your prayers because they're, uh, they are feeling it. All right, so I'm going to transition a bit, and I'm going to quickly talk about, I'm going to try to quickly talk about, uh, how long, how long is the broadcast so far, Mr. Producer? What are we looking at? About an hour? Okay. Hopefully we can end this off at an hour and a half. Um, real quick, this is from actually a Jihad Watch, which interestingly, the country of Australia shut jihadwatch.org down right before the election. Quite fascinating. But there's a man who won re-election. This man's name is Scott Morrison was reelected. And again it was one of those instances where nobody it was like the 2016 election all over again. All the polls said he wasn't going to win. Nobody thought he was going to win, you know, blah 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 blah. Um you know, he's an extremist, he's a racist, he's a, he's an Islamophobe and and all of this. And just just know that whenever they say Islamophobia, that is a tactic to shut down speech against Islam. Ultimately, most of Islam, most of uh, those who practice Islam, I'll say, I'll say this, um, at least the regimes that practice Islam do not believe in free speech. Uh, for example, would not believe that you would be able to tell another Muslim about Jesus without consequences or, or something in that respect, or just speak, or just even voice your disagreements, you know, about, you know, Muhammad having 11 wives or marrying a six-year-old and consummating the marriage with a nine-year-old or, or whatever it is, like stuff that, is, that Muslims themselves actually admit happened. That uh, is rather uncouth to, to Western taste, as you can imagine, because it's unbelievably horrific, right? It's 
beyond abominable. Uh, but you can't bring that up, even if it's in their sources, right? So ju- just know that just because someone calls you an Islamophobe for having some concerns about the teaching of Islam and even mass immigration of people who hold teachings of Islam and how that will affect our society because, uh, I mean, what majority Muslim nation holds to the same values of Western civilization? I mean, Turkey actually, for the longest time, was, was an exception. And Christians could actually minister for a long time in Turkey, believe it or not. But now, under under Erdogan, he is taking a relatively free Muslim-majority nation, and he's turning it into a, a caliphate. Uh, he, is, he is not the friend. He might be in NATO, but he is not the friend of the United States. Let's just make that, make that pr- plain and clear. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's basically... It, you're not an Islamophobe. Phobia is an irrational fear, right? Like that big movie, Arachnophobia, back in like the early 90s or whatever. Um, it's an irrational fear of spiders. Um, I'm sure some people do have Islamophobia, right? They see a lady in a hijab or something and they like freak out or whatever. I'm sure there are some people like that. But most of the people, I think, have issues with Islam because they see the effect of Islam all over the world. And they even see polls like uh, the Center for Security Policy uh, had a poll where somewhere in the range of 30 to 50 percent of Muslims believe that the U.S. Constitution should be replaced by Sharia law. And so if <laughs> you think it's a bad idea to import Muslims in mass when they would want to when a significant number of them would want to turn this into a uh, Islamic state, uh, that's not Islamophobia. That is uh, concerns, uh, rational concerns with the teaching of Islam. Anyways, but that's what they called this guy. But uh, uh, this guy ended up uh, winning the election pretty, pretty strongly. Americans tend to think that our politics are unique and that President Trump has caused all our political disruption. That's not true. The same patterns of populism, cultural conflict, and the movement of well-off and educated center-right voters away from their traditional party are happening around the globe. Australia, which holds its natural elections, is a case in point. And I think you're seeing a lot of this in Europe as well, which uh, a populist move uh, away from those who do want to import Islam and in a big way, and those who want to be a sovereign state and don't want to be beholden uh, to the European Union. <clears throat> the article from the Washington Post went on to explain that nearly 30% of all Australians are foreign-born, and the number rises each year, and that, quote, this has led to the rise of a new populist party, Pauline Hansen's One Nation. Hansen is a longtime anti-immigrant crusader, which is interesting. If, if you think immigration should be limited in any way or should be selective, then you're anti-immigrant, which is, it, it's, it's basically, it, it's just flat out incorrect. I mean, they call Trump anti-immigrant. He is not anti-immigrant at all. He is pro-illegal immigration with people that would actually be a net benefit to the United States. 
It's very different. It's like rational immigration policy. Um, the recent influx of immigrants combined with the increase in immigrants from Muslim countries has given her a second moment in the sun. Washington Post also referenced Morrison as emerging as a compromise candidate, signifying its attempts to malign populism and dismiss Morrison as a possibility. Polls that indicate that he would lose, much like Trump predictions right up to the, the ballot box. And I, I want you to imagine for a second, right, while we're thinking about immigration. Imagine for a second, 10 million, right? They're at our southern border. 10 million Caucasian evangelical males wearing MAGA hats standing there at our borders wanting to be in. Imagine that for a second, if you will. Imagine that for a second. What do you think the response from the left would be? Oh, just let them in. And they're all claiming asylum. They're all claiming person. You think so? Oh, okay, maybe that's giving them a little too much, too much credit, right? Okay, think about this. You have uh, a mix of 10 million peaceful, loving, black, Hispanic, Asian, Arab, Latin American men, women, and children at our borders all wearing MAGA hats and waving American flags instead of burning them, like some of, some of them are doing. What do you think would happen then? Okay, 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 let's pull back a bit. Now imagine this, that on our southern border are, are 10 million black transgender women, meaning they're actually men pretending to be women, all wearing MAGA hats and peacefully and lovingly waving the American flag. What do you think would happen then? How do you think that the, the policy of the left would change, the immigration policy of the left would change in that scenario? I mean, I can tell you. I can tell you, right? They would shut the border down. And it, and it would be. It would be a national emergency. It would be a national emergency. Why? Because ultimately, it is not about Polit uh, it, it is not about the people. It's about the politics, and it's about power. Separating uh, children from their families at the border has nothing. They don't. Uh, maybe some of them do. I can't judge all their hearts, but ultimately, it is not about the care for the children. Because if it was, when Obama was doing it, they would have made a big deal about it. Obama separates kids at the border, puts kids in cage, cages, or whatever. And it's okay. I even saw part of a CNN interview where this lady said, well, when Obama did it, it was, it was okay. Like, he did it for a good reason when Obama separated children from families. Oh, really? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? So, so look, I know I'm, I'm veering off a, a little bit here on some domestic immigration policy, but I think it's important for us to, to understand that this is all about politics. It, 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 it's not about the people. They think the more immigrants that they can let in, the more uh, a high percentage of them will eventually be Democrat voters, and they can change the trajectory of the United States for good and solidify power. I mean, that's ultimately what the immigration policy is about. And by the way, do you know why they actually, why it's actually a good thing? Now, we want to treat them well, Right, And if there are any shortfalls at the border with how we treat people, we want to fix that. So <clears throat> don't get me wrong. I'm, I, the last thing I want is for children to be in a bad situation. <clears throat> but it's sometimes a very good situation to separate children from their, quote, 
parents at the border. Why? Well, because a lot of times those kids are not actually the children of the adults that they traveled across the border with. Sometimes those kids are actually being trafficked. And sometimes, like human trafficking, like slavery. And sometimes they're just simply pawns to help get uh, to help uh, uh, people get across. So there's actually you want to separate them so you can question them, you can ask them, make sure they haven't been kidnapped and aren't about to be sold into slavery. So that they can be safe. You separate them because you do care about kids. And you can, if you need to, you can run DNA tests. There's a lot that we can do to verify. And yes, and then once you've verified that the kids are actually the, the children of these adults, well, then you can go through that process of reunification. Anyway, uh, but uh, uh, all, that, all that to say, um, it, it looks like in Australia... We've got uh, a guy in there now who is who is tough on jihad, who does have some sensible immigration ideas, and we'll see kind of we'll see what kind of uh, comes from that. So this is actually my I'm kind of doing a new section. Uh, I was going to call it the Middle East and, and America part of the broadcast, but really the I'm calling it the Middle East and the West because the Middle East has come to the West, right? It's here. Uh, in the form of uh, Islam, and so it's uh, important to uh, to understand what that is, so that we can pray and and we can we can make good policy based off of this. Well, <clears throat> one of this is going to be cut one, Mister Producer. One of the just as I've mentioned, probably my least favorite congresswoman in the history of congresswomen and it's not because she's a muslim it's not because she's a woman a woman i plenty of great great women congresswomen and how about i mean how about how was nikki haley as u.s ambassador to the u.n she was just unbelievable she was just unbelievable so trust me i have no problem um with that which they, of course, if if you if you attack them at all, then of course they play victim card and call it racism and and all this. It's so stupid and so evil. But there was a a, a clip uh, there was a, that surfaced the uh, on on Twitter the I believe the Reagan coalition a Reagan battalion actually on Twitter. She, in uh, this is bizarre. Out of all the horrible things that she said, whether you know support for APAC, the America Israel uh, Public Affairs Committee is all about the Benjamins, or uh, just bringing up a famous Jewish trope, or that uh, she was trying to get leniency. She wrote a letter to a judge to get leniency for uh, these guys that were wanting to go and join ISIS. And she's like, oh, judge, you know, blah, 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 please go easy on him. Uh, it, it's, or, uh, oh, of course, her 
most famous recent one was that she says on 9-11, some people did some things. <laughs> you can't, you can't make this stuff up. Um, and of course, she goes and she fundraises for CARE, the Council on American Islamic Relations, which is a U.S. front group for Hamas there in the Gaza Strip, which is a terrorist organization officially by the U.S., which CARE also, remember, was an unindicted uh, co-conspirator in the Holy Land Foundation trial, which was uh, just a, a money laundering scheme to a terrorist organization. CARE is a terrorist entity. I think along with the Muslim Brotherhood, they need they need to be designated as such. But here you have Ilan Omar fundraising for this group of very, very bad actors, right? But out of everything that she's said and she's done, I I wonder if this is the worst. I do. I wonder if this is the worst. I'm just gonna uh we're just gonna play the clip. And then I'll let you decide. This was uh, a, she was on a show in 2013. She was an activist within the uh, Somali community. Remember Somalia, which is where Omar is from, is listed as the number three persecutor of Christians in the world by the Open Doors USA 2019 annual report on Christian persecution. Um, and she was on a show uh, in Somalia in 2013. And let's play the clip. I remember um, when I was in college, I took uh, a terrorism class. And is that a such thing? Yeah, there was. So you there go. Was, out, there is a lab for that. There was. A, there was a class that you. <laughs> Do you go to lab? No, go we, 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 we learned the, the ideology of. I'm glad um, you do that. <laughs> and so it was. It was the the thing that was interesting in the class was every time the 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 professor said Al Qaeda, he sort of like his shoulders <laughs> went up and you know. Yeah, he's in command like, here. Al Qaeda, you know, hospital. He's an expert. <laughs> And it was, you know, as What's his it, name? As what a put his oh, name on the not, we, we Where does he live? We are not saying his name. Uh, yeah. you, you probably get to see him on, on CNN. And well, yeah, of course. I love those guys. But, you know, but, but, but it, is, it is that you don't say America with an yeah. intensity. You yeah. don't say England with yeah. an intensity. You yeah. know, you don't, you don't say um, the army with an intensity. Kind of. <laughs> But you say these these names because you you want that that word to carry weight. Did you get that? Feel free to rewind the podcast and listen to it again. That cannot be understated. And I apologize. It wasn't a show in Somalia. I don't know why I said that. It was a show in uh in the twin cities actually um show called bella don on pbs so that's what our tax dollars are going to right there which is why i mean let's be honest why does pbs need our tax money Uh, they can make it on their own we're basically funding left-wing media why do we need to fund left-wing media there is plenty of it already already but you don't say america with an intensity you don't say 
England with an intensity. You don't say the army with an intensity, but you know, you, you say Al-Qaeda with an intensity. This just doesn't make any, any sense. <laughs> she is equating America, England, the U.S. Army, of which, of course, she sits on the Foreign Relations Committee, so she, she has influence. Thank God she's not like Commander-in-Chief. Equating them with Al-Qaeda, essentially, because otherwise, why would the teacher like respond like that to America and England? I mean, surely she can understand why we would wince about terrorist groups, right? But apparently it's just she doesn't get it. Why would you talk about Al-Qaeda and Al-Shabaab any differently than you would talk about America or England? Or the army that protects her and keeps her safe in the greatest and most prosperous nation in the world? Look, as I've said before, and I've pulled no punches, I believe she's a terrorist in the sense that she promotes terrorism. She works with terror proxies. And her disdain for the United States, her disdain for the Jewish people, uh, doesn't seem to have bounds. And actually, uh, this when Fox News, uh, uh, when Fox News actually contacted her office about the clip, the, they didn't they didn't get a response. Uh, so she may have responded in some other way that that I haven't seen yet. But this is really really telling. All this to say two things. We need to pray for her because she, she actually made a clip uh, recently. I posted it on my Twitter at Mitty's Briefing where she did uh, a couple minutes basically trashing Christians for supporting uh, the Alabama and Georgia abortion bills. It, it, she just, I mean, specifically attacking Christians and calling us hypocrites, and that we really don't care about people. Uh, I mean, all this, and what basically what I said is all this woman knows are lies and hate. Please pray for her. And again, uh, she's one of those people that I have to, when I think about her, I have to pray for her, or my heart goes places that it doesn't need to go. So please, uh, please pray for her. Um, also, also, I wanted to mention this real quick, the last story in my Middle East and the West section. This is from the Washington Times. Doctor's career threatened for asking woman to remove niqab. And the doctor's response, I'm not a racist. This is May 22nd, Douglas Ernst. A UK doctor's 23-year career excuse me, is on the line for asking a woman to remove her niqab, which is this the the uh, Muslim uh, veil covering, so he could better understand her. Right? I mean, you got to be able to actually, you're trying to treat someone, you got to be able to understand her. Dr. Keith Wolverson, 52, of Royal Stoke University Hospital, was treating a woman's child for suspected tonsillitis in June when he asked the mother to take off a niqab. He thought everything at the walk-in center went well until her husband filed a formal complaint. The General Medical Council sent him a letter informing him of a racism, huh? A racism 
investigation that is underway. That's a tactic of the left, of Islam. If you do anything that a Muslim doesn't like, it's racist. It doesn't make any logical sense. It's demonic thinking. There's no rationality behind it. Like it says in the book of James that the wisdom from above, it's pure, it's reasonable. This is not. This has nothing to do with the color of her skin. It has to do with him being able to understand her so he can treat her. A petition has already garnered 20,000 signatures to make sure he is treated fairly, the UK Telegraph reported Monday. Quote, I'm not racist. This has nothing to do with race, religion, or skin color. Skin color. It's about clarity of communication, he told the Daily Mirror. I've treated women in the past who have worn similar veils, but on those occasions, I've never had to ask them to remove it. They just did. I've seen the suggestion that I could have asked a female GP to carry out the treatment for the women's daughter, but there was no female GP in the center. The doctor has not worked since the investigation began. It's not been easy, he continued. I was just trying to do my job. Mohammed Shafiq of the Ramadan Foundation said medical personnel should have found a way to provide a female staffer, the Daily Mail reported. So there you go. There you go. That's our Middle East and the West segment, and hopefully the West wakes up to this kind of garbage. Um, and we put in place sensible policies to mitigate, ultimately, the Islamization of the West. All right, let's talk real quick about the deal of the century, <clears throat> which I'm, I'm going to be talking about it pretty much every week until, until it comes out. We did find out that the economic side of things uh, is apparently going to be released at a conference in Bahrain, June 25th to 26th. So we will keep uh, our eyes out for that, which is a great thing because I'm going to be floating in the uh, Pacific Ocean on my way to Alaska, and I did not want the deal of the century to come out then. I would have been very upset, so it looks like it's coming out at the end of June, so I, or at least part of it, so I'm excited about that. So what's going on? Um, this is from the Jerusalem Post. Arab states pressuring Palestinians to attend workshops. And this is the workshop that is going to be in Bahrain. And I believe if I have the dates here correctly, uh, yeah, I believe it's June 25th and 26th. But basically what I've said about the deal of the century, and again, like I said last week, if you've been following me from when I first started doing the podcast, which if so, God bless you, you're you're amazing. Um, But I was very, very, uh, let's just say pessimistic about the Kushner peace plan. Very pessimistic about it. I didn't think it would do anything. Why? Because it'd be dead on arrival. Why? Because the Palestinians would reject it. How did I know the Palestinians have rejected it? Would reject it? Because they've rejected every plan since about, oh, the 1930s (laughs) that came out. They have a century of rejecting peace plans. So why in the world would they change now? They don't even... Uh, recognize Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state. So there's even a non-starter. Abbas has said when there's a Palestinian state, there won't be a single Jew in Palestine. I mean, this is a, they're a terrorist regime. I'm not going to rehash all that. They're a terrorist regime. And they well, months ago, 
were already lobbying. Abbas was going around to Arab states lobbying against the plan months ago. So of course it's dead on arrival, right? I mean, I'm the podcast host, so I must be right about everything, right? Wrong. Wrong. I will say this. What I did say is that there could be a mechanism that I'm not aware of that that the Trump administration uses to force the Palestinian Arabs to the table. Some Arab states have begun exerting pressure on the Palestinians to agree to participate in next month's workshop in Bahrain, where the U.S. administration is planning to unveil the economic portion of its long-awaited plan for peace in the Middle East. Interesting. Interesting. And I did briefly mention this last week, is that some Arab countries could be like, look, you go with this peace plan, or we're going to strong arm you guys out of leadership of the PA, and we're going to put other people in who will accept the peace plan, right? So that was in it. That was, that's the thing. And, and here we go. Quote, some Arab countries are unhappy that we immediately rejected the idea of the workshop, a senior Palestinian Authority official in Ramallah told the Jerusalem Post. They are now asking us to stop attacking the workshop and not to oppose the participation of Palestinian businessmen. The official did not name the Arab countries that were reportedly pressuring the PA leadership to soften its stance toward the upcoming workshop in Manama, Bahrain. However, other officials in Ramallah told the Post that Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and the UAE have relayed a message to the PA leadership in which they expressed concern over Palestinian opposition to the workshop. And, of course, uh, the article goes on that you can read more about it at um, midisnewsbrief.com. Uh, I wanted to get to some Greenblatt remarks at the UN because there's basically a big uh, Middle East debate going on, going on at the UN Security Council that, of course, is uh, filled with a bunch of um, basically oppressive, oppressive autocratic regimes, and it's just uh, completely illegitimate. However, you've got you have got to. Oh, before I get to that, so let me just say, in regard to the deal of the century, it looks like. <clears throat> the Arabs might pressure the Palestinian Arabs to accept it. So that's another, there's just another link. This could actually be a thing, right? It could actually work. That the guy who wrote, wouldn't it be something, the guy who wrote the art of the deal actually got an Israeli-Arab peace deal that presidents have been trying for decades and decades. Wouldn't that be something. But also, you've got to go to midisnewsbrief.com. This will be the last thing I mentioned before the quote of the week. There is a video that just surfaced, I believe this morning, about the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, Haj Amin al-Husseini, who is head, who was head of the Palestinian Arabs in like the 30s and 40s, I believe even in the 20s, doing the Nazi salute to Adolf Hitler. There's no mistaking. I mean, there's no mistaking it. The video footage is just absolutely clear. 
clear. You've probably seen that famous video of Hitler and Hajimen al-Husseini um, uh, sitting together. But you're like, oh, maybe they just had like a diplomatic meeting. You could make some kind of uh, you know excuse. <laughs> this doesn't lie, man. He does a full Nazi salute to the Fuhrer himself. Why do I bring that up? When you're discussing the deal of the century, you got to know who you're dealing with, right? The, the Palestinian Authority is not moderate. Fatah, which is the name of the West Bank Party, means conqueror. Again, they, they pay families of terrorists. They give them stipends, government stipends for the rest of their life, government pensions. I mean, this is, this is a terrorist group that is not to be taken lightly and really is not to be given a state, too, that they can then take and then launch terror attacks on Israel. Right? They wouldn't accept it anyway. Look, they've been offered everything they could possibly want in a two-state solution and rejected it. We got to know who we're dealing with. And ultimately, Mahmoud Abbas... Uh, the leadership of Hamas, they all want the same thing. From the river to the sea, Palestine shall be free. But check that out. If anyone says that the Palestinian movement is a peaceful movement, uh, that's some great evidence to suggest the otherwise. All right, so for the quote of the, for the, quote of the week, or uh, rather the passage of the week, uh, I want to end off the broadcast reading from the book I've mentioned a few times, uh, The Crusader, Ronald Reagan and the Fall of Communism. I've mentioned before the parallels between Trump and Reagan and Iran and the USSR, and I feel like this passage from the book uh, sums it up beautifully. This is from uh, page 202, the Kremlin verse Reagan. The, tra- the chapter begins really with a recounting of the incredible economic recovery under Reagan, the restoring of patriotism and national pride, and even critics on the left who were actually honest enough to <laughs> credit him <coughs> Excuse me for these things. But there was one problem. It was 1984, and you had Walter Mondale waiting in the wings to undo everything Reagan and his team had accomplished. Reagan had to get reelected, as Paul Kegner, the author of The Crusader, uh, documents in this book. Uh, before Reagan took office, though he didn't state it publicly, he told a select few that one of his goals was to take down the Soviet Union. And look, I get that Trump says he is not aiming for regime change, and maybe he's telling the truth, but I wouldn't be surprised if deep down, or maybe even just below the surface, He really wants the mullahs to fall. Just as Reagan never admitted, but had planned from the beginning for the Soviets to fall. Here's what it says. It's easy to forget that by 1984, Ronald Reagan had achieved this renewal, everything I was talking about before, while critics tore at him and his policies. He was called stupid, uncaring, a warmonger, and had been especially vilified in the previous intense Cold War year. Yet, while there may have been a grudging appreciation of what Reagan had accomplished, the Kremlin still wanted him defeated, and badly so. 
there was severe apprehension of that first Reagan administration and its prospects for a second term. This is beginning to sound familiar. Yevgeny Novikov recalled, quote, The Central Committee realized that they were facing a committed government in Washington. They saw activity on all fronts that frightened them to death. At the start of 1984, the Soviet media was filled with examples of this siege mentality. TASS, quote, economic writer Vladimir Pirogov said it was no secret that Reagan was aiming to exhaust the USSR. As Reagan kicked off his election campaign in January, sirens were sounded in Pravda, the magazine, Russian magazine. In his January 10th column, a perceptive columnist named Vitaly Koryanov linked Reagan's intent to undermine to his religious motivations. It was at the present, should I do a Russian accent? It was at the present White House incumbent, invoking God who declared the crusade against socialism. Okay, I'll spare you. The present U.S. administration has announced in official documents that its aim is to, quote, destroy socialism as a socio-political system. U.S. political, economic, and ideological life is increasingly subordinated to that unreal task. As we can see, the psychological warfare conducted by the United States and its allies against real socialism is organized, coordinated, and directed. Washington is deeply involved in an exceptionally dangerous, quote, crusade against socialism as a social system. The most highly placed U.S. officials, headed by the president, are the spearhead of the spiritual aggression. The U.S. president personally participates in the subversive actions. Sound familiar? President Trump himself came out and said, America will never be a socialist nation. He's having, he is trying to undermine uh, a regime in Tehran, and he has to fight socialism. The thing that was over there, that is now over here. And so, of course, keep the president in your prayers as uh, he continues that fight, and let's have its back. All right, <clears throat> that will do it for this week's edition of Mideast News Brief. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Thank you to Michael, our new producer. It was so cool having him here, and I look forward to having him for the rest of the summer. And uh, please, again, follow me on Twitter, at Mideast Briefing, and all the articles linked will be in the show notes of this broadcast at MideastNewsBrief.com. God bless, and pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper those who love you.